0: This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Chris Kaiser, who is an economics researcher who works on labor issues at a DC think tank. Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Jimmy, it's a pleasure. So I wanted to get
0: started with your background like I do with all my guests. Um, As I said when I introduced you, you're an economics researcher and you work at a research center in DC. So basically, you're like an economics geek. Uh,
1: You know, the people who know me best might actually think that's underestimating my interest level in economics. Um, But no, it's a a great question. Difficult one to answer, funny enough, the ones about yourself. But I came into college interested in politics. So I studied political science. Um, You know, political science, like a lot of disciplines in social science, are subject-driven. Political science is the study of politics. Um, And what I came to find out is that a lot of debates about politics come down to policy and what impacts policy has or does not have. And so I think that led me to be curious about um, economics. And I realized, at least for me personally, that economics um, was a better lens with which to analyze the impact of policy. I think economics is, maybe this is surprising, but it's, it's not the study of the economy. Uh, it's not subject driven, it's framework driven. And so the framework and the intellectual toolkit of economics was helpful for me to understand the impact of public policy. So in short, that's probably how I got into economics and why I'm an economics geek now.
0: You mentioned you started in poli-sign and ended up in economics. And I'm curious then, why not just go over to, um, you know, the, the James Buchanan political economy stuff. In other words, applying economics to politics.
1: You know, the truth is, is I wasn't aware of Uh, the work of James Buchanan is is in economics, you'd call this public choice theory. I wasn't aware of public choice economics in my undergraduate education. Um, So I'd love, I I know a little bit and I'd love to learn more, but you're right that that would seem to be, especially for students like me who are interested in both policy and politics, uh, public choice seems like a more natural fit to study the incentives of politicians themselves. But it just because it wasn't available or widely taught at the school I went to, I, I didn't naturally uh, lean into public choice theory.
0: So I mentioned earlier and I'll mention again that you work in labor issues. And I think people miss the fact that labor is a market and economists think of labor as a market. So you can think of a market in terms of like coffee at Starbucks or you know steak at the grocery store these are all markets, but labor's market is a market too, or at least economists think of it that way. Um, So why do economists, why are economists right?
1: You know, it's not clear whether or not economists are right per se in some abstract sense. Of course, right with respect to what? I think economics is helpful for explaining and describing the impact of public policy in the world. So what's interesting about the labor market and how economists think of it is it's a little counterintuitive, if you're familiar with economics in in the framework of other markets. So you mentioned Starbucks coffee. So in the market of Starbucks coffee, we think of ourselves as consumers. So we're the demand, we demand Starbucks coffee and Starbucks and coffee shops, they, they supply the coffee. What's interesting about a labor market is that the analogy flips in terms of where we refer to ourselves. In a labor market, firms demand our labor they're the demanders and we supply our labor we're the suppliers so the law of demand says that as the price of something rises people will generally demand less of it so you can think of the price of labor as the wage rate and as the wage rate rises in a labor market in general firms will tend to demand less labor now, the law of supply is the inverse, which means that as the price of something increases, firms are more willing to supply it, given that we're the suppliers of labor. Hey, well, the more you're willing to pay me, the more inclined I might be to work. So that's generally how economists think of labor as a market.
0: People often we'll often think of companies in terms of profit motives. So we rarely think of workers in terms of wage motives. And they seem very very analogous to one another. Um, you know, we don't. You know, nurses don't. Nurses and doctors, even though they're good people, they're not just showing up to help people. They're showing up because they want to get paid, right? They're they're interested in wages. Um, I'm wondering if maybe that's the reason is that we don't think of labor as a market, so we also don't think of the wage motive quite the same way we think of profit motive. I mean, this is just speculation, but I wonder.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, economics is often framed as thinking about self-interested actors. And I think we have the personal incentive to think, oh, everyone else is self-interested. But me, myself, I'm very altruistic. I'm a very selfless person. Uh, But in actuality, you know, you you make a good point about the analogy between firms pursuing profit and people pursuing wages, irrespective of whether or not you think pursuing your self-interest is good or bad. It, it does seem that we, at some fundamental level, are uh, self-interested enough to where most people choose to work because they get paid. It's, some, it's a necessity for life per se, uh, but that the pay is not the only thing that's important for work, um, but it is significant and it does, does drive our, our behavior in, in some areas.
0: There does seem to be, um, I was thinking the other day about um, labor as a market versus say like markets and coffee. And I thought there's something very interestingly disanalogous with labor. So one of the different features about labor is like, sometimes people will form labor unions, right? And they'll collectively bargain. And I thought, wouldn't that be weird if like Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts got together and they're like, we're going to form like this union of like suppliers. Right? I mean, one way I guess this happens with companies is they merge, like one buys the other or something. Um, but it's kind of um, it's kind of weird, like we don't, I don't know what the analogy would be on the goods and services side of forming a union to collectively bargain,
1: right? It doesn't have a great connotation, but the word cartel is the one that comes to mind. And so, and, and, and it's not to mean a pejorative, it's not, I don't mean it in any pejorative sense, economists normally think of the Starbucks analogy that you talked about. I don't know, a bunch of coffee suppliers getting together to fix the price or say, hey, I'm not going to charge a lower price. If you don't, we'll keep the price high. We'd think of that type of uh, anti-competitive behavior as a sort of cartel. And so again, putting the connotation of that word aside, uh, labor unions are similar in that, um, you know, they, they the, the goal of many labor unions is to argue for higher wages than workers are otherwise receiving. Um, in no way am I an expert on any of these things, but from my general read of the economics literature, um, economists will view uh, cartels uh, as occurring potentially in both the traditional market of goods and in the labor market as well. And Unions might be the manifestation of cartels in the labor market.
0: Yeah, the only reason I, I was trying to avoid using that word exactly the uh, connotation, because um, it, it does have a very negative connotation, but it's weird that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at though. A lot of people are very pro-union, but if I was like, oh yeah, Pepsi and Coke form this cartel to like control prices of soft drinks, a lot of them would probably be at, at a minimum annoyed, if not horrified. I find that very strange. I mean, I think it's going back to the, Asymmetry—the way people think about goods and services as a market, but not labor—I think that's all kind of part of the same thing. But I wanted to move on to something else that I think is interesting, that economists talk a lot about, and is definitely salient right now, which is worker productivity. It looks like it—it's not a straight line. There are dips and 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 whatnot. But but I'm wondering if you could talk about um, some of the mechanisms and policies that contribute to the trend of basically over the last few decades, um, rising worker productivity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So it is true by and large, you know, over the past 100, 200 years, especially post-industrial revolution, we've seen this steady increase in worker productivity over time in the aggregate. Um, It's important to understand what worker productivity is though. Uh, It's actually a fraction. So, it is uh, the amount of output per hour work. So, in a simple sense, it's a good way to frame it as the fraction of output as the numerator and the amount of labor as the denominator. Um, so, in that sense, one of the reasons I think economists generally say, which uh, seems fairly self evident in our own lives, as to why worker productivity has increased, is because of the advent of technology. I think we can all realize that using a laptop and typing things out with our fingers is much faster and more efficient makes us more productive than using a pen and scratching things out by hand. Um, So that's generally how economists think of it. I know there's a question of whether or not we might expect worker productivity to continue to rise. And so what's interesting about that question is that Irrespective of whether you're a techno-pessimist or a techno-optimist, you you would still expect productivity to rise um, if you expect technology to continue to advance. And the reason is because labor productivity, worker productivity is a fraction. So if we're optimistic, we might say increases in technological advancement will lead firms to invest more capital in their workers, making them more productive worker productivity will increase. If you're more pessimistic and you think that automation might replace human labor, people will become unemployed. Well, remember, labor is in the denominator of that fraction. So as labor gets smaller, that fraction will rise. So worker productivity mechanically will still increase, even if you're concerned about automation replacing some people's jobs. And then in that context, the only scenario in which we wouldn't expect worker productivity to rise, and it's not a given, is if we wouldn't expect technology to continue to advance.
0: I like at most of the technology, technological advancements are a necessary but not sufficient condition. So you might think we can imagine like this, like this post-apocalyptic world where somehow technology still increases but all the technological increases are going to things like video games. Like we find just more ways of amusing ourselves and being lazier, but it doesn't actually translate to broader worker productivity because it's just not on the, it's not on the worker side of things. It's like on the leisure side of things.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, this is a great point. Uh, I had a conversation the other day, funny enough, someone had told me that oh yes, worker productivity has risen over time, but so is Netflix. (laughs) And that doesn't seem to make people very, you know, any much more productive than they would otherwise be. Um, So I I think you're absolutely right. Um, Necessary, but not sufficient. Because as technology can make us more productive, it's also easy to get trapped in a uh, watching YouTube for hours at a time. And because of you know how efficient youtube is at sending us exactly what we'd like to watch and 10 videos just like it uh so necessary but not sufficient and i think you're right on the money there with that observation
0: well part of what i was thinking was the um the virtual reality worlds and ready player one here you know, the movie where i don't know if you've seen it but it's this idea where like this is like elaborate virtual reality that people spend a big chunk of their lives in, and they like they have like friends, they meet only there and they have money and stuff, but it's like this all immersive world. And I was like, wow, if we had this, you know, greater technology, we'd have that kind of thing, but maybe no one get anything done. I'm actually shocked. We get as much done as we do. And speaking of worker productivity, there's also on the flip side, which is like worker shortages, wages are going up. I'm curious, and I know you've done some work on this. So I'm curious, what, what is driving
1: that? Yeah. I've just tried to give a cursory glance of the literature on the subject and understand um, some of the debates. I'll try to frame some of the main reasons why different economists think we're in uh, a labor shortage. So I think there's three main reasons why we might be seeing a labor shortage based on my read of the literature. The one is concerns about COVID. Naturally, if the workplace is an environment where transmitting the virus or acquiring it uh, is greater than being at home or in a situation where you're not working, concerns of COVID might keep you out of the labor force. The second is child care and concerns about childcare. You know, schools closed down during the pandemic. That put immense stress on parents to have to stay home and take care of their children. And so that line of reasoning would say that because parents have to stay home and take care of their children, childcare is taking away so much of their time that, that they, they can't work like they used to. And then the third reason we might think about, there are more for sure, but the, the third main reason we might want to think about is government programs which have changed people's incentive to work or maybe just made being unemployed less harmful and so individuals might be unemployed for longer than they would otherwise be.
0: My understanding is the Biden administration has predominantly blamed reasons one and two, namely COVID and childcare. And I'm wondering if there's any reason, any or any approach of teasing out how you proportion which reasons to what, like what are the bigger, what's the bigger reason, what's the smaller reason, how how would we go about figuring that out? Like very
1: roughly speaking. It's funny. I'm glad you said roughly speaking, because, you you know, you could easily pivot to the econometrics and talk about all the different ways that economists try to tease out causal relationships, because it's very hard. You know, something like whether or not an individual is working is multivariate uh, problem, multiple things at play. I guess one way I would think about it is in um, changes in these relevant variables over time. And to be clear, this is an open empirical question still. So there's research on both sides, but you might think that fear of COVID was particularly um, relevant at the beginning of the pandemic, prior to the advent of vaccines, of testing, and that over time as um, vaccines have become widely available and some people have felt it safer to go back to work as a result, that that reason might play a smaller role than it did previously. Child care is probably a similar story there in that schools were, used to be closed are now open. That's relieved some stress on parents in terms of their, their the time they have to spend to take care of their children. Um, there's different empirical findings on the question of child care. I know some research by uh, economists at Harvard, I'm thinking of Jason Furman's research and his co-authors, if I'm correct, they've said essentially in their work that parents just got more stressed out, they didn't reduce how much they worked, so they just balanced children and uh, work life. Um, Other researchers have come to different results. And then pivoting to the the third explanation, which is the government programs which have Given people money during the pandemic to make the financial distress less harmful, um, that reason was likely playing a smaller role initially, keeping people out of the labor market. But over time, it might seem that that variable might be more relevant. So what's interesting not per se is that there's a worker shortage at any given point in the pandemic. I think what's interesting from a research perspective is how prolonged this shortage has been. You talked about rising wages. Why do employer why do wages rise in a waker shortage, in a labor shortage? Wages rise because employers are trying to bid workers to come back into the labor market. There's a scarcity of workers and so they have to offer to pay them more to come to work. You wouldn't expect there to be higher wages forever. It's just to induce people to come back in. But given that there's a labor shortage which has lasted this long and that wages are still being bid up, the interesting question is why this has occurred for so long. and That one is still uh, an open empirical question.
0: I'm curious in your opinion, um, what would encourage worker participation? So what would be something either employers could do or perhaps federal or state governments could do that would encourage it? Maybe there's, maybe there is nothing, I don't know, but I'm curious what you think.
1: So I'm not going to think of, try to ponder some original policy idea that no one has thought of before. What I will talk about is the earned income tax credit. This is a fairly popular policy. A lot of, uh, you know, people in the policy sphere are familiar with it. Essentially, the earned income tax credit is a wage subsidy. So you only get it if you work, and it supplements your income uh, that you that you earn. Um, the way the earned income tax credit works is it's a targeted program, so it's not universal. If you make over a certain amount, you don't qualify for the wage subsidy. Um, so the earned income tax credit, there's a lot of literature on it. The general understanding in terms of the, the economic theory as it relates to it is that by increasing the return to work, it encourages more people to enter into the labor market and seek a job and choose to work. Now, in economics, we, we distinguish between the extensive margin and the intensive margin. So you asked me about labor force participation. That's the extensive margin. How many people are in the labor force? How many people are working? The intensive margin is how many hours do each people work? So the EITC would be theoretically predicted to increase participation. More people would enter into the labor force because the return from working is higher. Now, the intensive margin, how many hours they work, that's a different question. That's more muddy because in order to phase out the program, that creates incentives to where people might actually choose to work less than they did previously in order to get some wage subsidy. So to answer your question specifically of increasing the amount of people who are employed or looking for employment, something like the EITC is, would be theoretically predicted to do that.
0: What you're saying is this might get more bodies in the workforce, but it might not net you more hours worked Aggregate.
1: Yes, it depends. You know, the effect of the EITC on how many hours any given individual works uh, it is ambiguous. It depends. Some will work more, some will work less, some will work the same amount. And the reason that is, is because the way the EITC works is, again, it's targeted. So for very low wage earners, you, you get a pretty sizable wage subsidy. Um, at an increasing rate. And then there's a plateau to where the amount of benefit you get is the, is held constant. And then there's a phase out period where we slowly decrease the amount of EITC you receive as you earn more. And because of this increase, this plateau, and this phase out, it can incentivize people to change their hours worked on the intensive margin differently, contingent on their own preferences and contingent on whatever their wage rate may be.
0: I want to ask an education or a pedagogic question, and it's something that I face in my own work as a philosopher. If you're trying to explain stuff about labor markets as a market, or, um, and you're trying to explain it to a non economist, what approach do you use? I mean, I presume you don't use things like um, econometrics and like difference in difference measurements and stuff, obviously, right? But presumably you do something. I would imagine you talk to, you know, non-economists.
1: What is your approach? That's a great question. You know, in some respect, that's the billion dollar question. If it was was easy to convey ideas to others, um, I think people like me and scholars who work on these issues might not have a job or would just have fewer of them. Um, So the approach I generally take, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the importance of stories. Uh, stories really resonate with people. There's an economist, Tim Hartford. He's famous for his ability to tell stories and convey economics to people through storytelling. And one thing that's key in stories is that stories normally lack jargon. Economics is full of jargon. And that jargon is often, you know, it obscures the point that people are trying to make. And so if we can, you know, convey the information through a story, in a simpler way without jargon, I think that's a better approach in terms of conveying people, conveying to people how to think of, for example, labor as a sort of market. Um, In particular, stories that are relevant to you. You know, if we're talking about disincentives to work, maybe that might not be intuitive that, you know, we would work less if we were paid more potentially. But if you ask yourself, Are you more likely to take a vacation if it's paid or unpaid? I think you start to see the intuition as to why sometimes giving people money might reduce their incentive to work.
0: Speaking of being paid money, reducing their incentive, one of Andrew Yang's, uh, who's a former presidential candidate, and then he was a mayoral candidate in New York and lost, one of his central planks is universal basic income. And I'm wondering if we've undergone incidental experiments with universal basic income in the form of people getting a lot, like American citizens getting direct cash payments from the federal government. I'm wondering if you think this is one sort of a test of universal basic income, not a perfect test, but a very rough test, and whether or not it bodes trouble for Andrew Yang's views on this.
1: You know, one thing we wanna talk about with respect to analyzing how public policies that give lower income people or anyone money affect the incentive to work is actually whether or not it's universal or targeted, because those are associated with different sets of problems. So I'd actually argue that the experience over COVID might actually be a very poor test of what a universal basic income policy like might be because while there were universal elements for example like we sent cash payments to almost everyone in the country we also changed so many other targeted programs we increased rental assistance food stamps temporary aid for needy families these sorts of policies are targeted and associated with a different disincentive problems so ideally the clean test would be one in which we only expanded a universal payment to people, but because a lot of the other COVID-related policies expanded and messed around with targeted programs, um, something like unemployment insurance, a targeted program only for those who are unemployed, of course, um, it, it might actually be a difficult test in terms of to what extent something like UBI might disincentivize work.
0: I think you're right that it's a bad test of UBI and ideal space. In other words, if we're just doing universal basic income in that world, this wouldn't, this COVID experiment wouldn't be a very good test of what that world looks like. But let's think about this realistically. Suppose you want to follow Andrew Yang's policy and implement UBI, you're likely going to have special interests, politicians, voters, who are going to push to have not only UBI, but lots of other like in-kind assistance programs, you're gonna get like a whole hodgepodge of a safety net, right? Like you're never gonna get the clear cut UBI with nothing else attached. That, and, and I mean, just politically, that's not feasible, I don't think. So what I'm wondering is if maybe it actually is a good test, given what would likely happen if you just added the UBI to the mix, which I'm thinking if you're gonna UBI at all, that's probably what you're gonna get. You're gonna get UBI, you're gonna get rental assistance, you're gonna get you know, maybe food stamps. There's gonna be this, oh, this weird, in other words, if you really think about this from the, in terms of political economy, and it's, it's just not clear to me, it's a bad test. It seems like a good one, actually.
1: So I think in that respect, no, it's a great point uh, in that if, if relating back to the public choice theory, and uh, what incentives politicians might face that might make uh, what would start as a UBI to become something more, you know, in terms of the economics and the question of the disincentive to work, Economists like to talk about income effects, which is if I just give you a flat amount of money, um, that increases your consumption level, and you don't have to work as much to have the same amount of the same amount of spending. We like to talk about income effects, and then something a little more difficult to understand: substitution effect. All that means is substitution effects. You can think of it as taxes per se, in that depending on whether you you uh, get a positive tax or a negative tax, it changes the return to work. So universal universal basic income, one positive thing we can say is that just by giving everyone the money, we don't change the return to work on the margin. And so the only disincentive effect that there might be is because of that first income effect, that giving people more money, irrespective of how much they work, might they might be okay with uh, maintaining their similar level of consumption they had prior to receiving that money and choosing to work a little less. If UBI was to be implemented as this hodgepodge where we, like you said, we increase all the other, these other programs, we're going to have to worry more about this substitution effect. And the way this substitution effect works is it changes the return to work. Economists will sometimes talk about food stamps, for example, as facing a cliff effect. What that means is that because it's a targeted program, for some individuals, in order to get off of it, they face this income cliff in that they might actually have to accept less consumption and less overall money uh, to choose to work and not be on the program than to be on the program in the first place. And so when you're talking about expanding these other programs which are targeted, we might run into income cliffs, which are in relation to the return to work that might also disincentivize people to go back to work. I mean, the the worst example is a situation where someone literally has to uh, forego $20 of government benefits to accept a $10 an hour job. That's horrible incentives. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of those targeted programs run into uh, substitution effect problems that affect people's return from working.
0: And the only reason I brought up the political economy stuff was just because it's just such a complicated thing. Um, but and the reason I bring this up too is that philosophers like to distinguish between um, arguments and positions under ideal conditions. So one ideal condition would be where everyone is justice compliant, and then under real world conditions, where people are only partially justice compliant. And I think that gets lost a lot in these discussions, especially on the popular side of things, unfortunately. Speaking of getting lost, I'm curious if you think there's any aspect of the labor market that's like widely misreported or widely misunderstood. Something that like you hear it a lot and you're like yelling at your TV or something and you're like, that's not
1: right. That's a great question. Let me backtrack for one moment just to say. Because you mentioned I know your background is in philosophy and you're way more familiar with logical fallacies than I am, but just to say that there's a cost to a program and that cost might be that it disincentivizes work isn't to say it's one that we shouldn't pursue. We have to consider the benefits of it as well and to whether or not we choose to implement said policy is really a matter of public debate, a matter for policymakers to decide, economists just try to articulate and argue about what said costs and benefits may be. Um, To your question now about something that's widely misunderstood, this is a great one. Um, I would say unemployment. The unemployment rate is actually not a good indicator of the health of the labor market. And that sounds odd because the story we generally think in our minds is high unemployment is bad. That means people can't find jobs, so when the unemployment rate is high, there's a lot of people out of work, and we associate that with recessions and bad times. We think the inverse of a low unemployment rate. Low unemployment rate is good. Most people who are looking for a job have a job. We see this in economic expansions. The reason why the unemployment rate is not a great indicator of the health of the labor market is because the unemployment Employment rate, too, is a fraction, and fractions can be tricky. But the unemployment rate, what it technically is, is the number of people who don't have a job but are looking for a job divided by the labor force. And the labor force is those who have a job and those who don't but are looking. So, notably, if you don't have a job and you stopped looking, you're not counted in the unemployment rate. So I'll give you an example, Jimmy. In COVID, there was a period of time where we saw the unemployment rate more recently in 2020, we start to see it rise a lot. And so there's some individuals out there who are really concerned and oh no, this isn't good. The unemployment rate is rising. But in my mind, I think of uh There's an economist named Michael Farron at the Mercatus Center. He was waving his hand saying, no, that's not what it means. It's actually a great sign because what it means that the unemployment rate was rising in, in 2020 as we're coming out of COVID, it meant that people had shifted from not looking at all for a job to starting to look. And naturally, once people start to look for a job and they can't find one at first, at least, that means the unemployment rate will be high. And so in that case, the high unemployment rate was actually an indicator that the labor market is doing uh, better. So more generally, a quick analogy I'd use is baseball. It's hard to understand the game of baseball by just looking at any one given player on the field. And so it's hard to understand the health of the labor market by looking at any given one metric. What we need to do, like in baseball, is look at all of the players on the field and how they relate to each other to understand how the, how the game works, but also to understand how the labor market uh, is functioning and whether or not it's healthy or not.
0: To be clear, um, it could be that rising unemployment's a bad thing. I mean, you may have people that want work and can't find it, but I think what you were getting at, it's a sign that people will now have faith that rather than not even trying to get a job, they actually like start looking because they think there's a better shot of me actually getting one than I used to have. So. I think a lot of people, when they think of unemployment numbers, they just think that's just people who don't have jobs, right? Well, you're saying it's no, it's people who don't have jobs who want them. And the who want them part, I think, is the qualifier that people don't, most people don't know that.
1: Yeah, we can imagine, you're absolutely right, Jimmy. We can imagine a scenario in which unemployment is very low. And all that would mean is that everyone who's looking for a job, for the most part, has one. There's few people who aren't who are looking, who can't find one, but we're setting aside the fact that there may be a whole bunch of people who have just given up looking entirely. There actually might not be that many people who have jobs. And that's because there's a lot of people who are just discouraged, we'd say, who aren't looking at all. And that wouldn't be a very favorable uh, scenario, but it would still be one where mechanically where the unemployment rate would be low. So you're, you're exactly right in that respect.
0: Oh, that's a, good, that's a good one. I don't think a lot of people know that, um, that like, like average people, I think they just think unemployment, is just people who don't, aren't, don't have jobs. Um, I wanna to shift to the last two questions that I always ask every guest. The first one's about failure. Um, failure can be your best friend or your worst enemy. The UFC fighter Conor McGregor used to famously say, either you win or you learn. So my question for you is, was there a time when you failed, either professionally or personally, what happened and what did you learn?
1: I hope Conor McGregor isn't listening to it, but that's probably one of the brighter comments he made. Um, he would come after me if he heard me say that. Um, I love this question, a spectacular failure. Um, So I know you had Pete Beckie on this show recently and he talked about basketball. Well, forgive me for also talking about basketball. So in middle school basketball, I played on one of the best teams in the city and it was the city championship game. I was on this team, but I never played. I didn't play for most of the season for most of the playoffs. And in this city championship game, I had not played a single minute. I sat on the bench the entire time, but for whatever reason, oh, there's 20 seconds left to go in the game. Our team is up by two. And presumably because he felt bad that I hadn't played in probably the past four or five games, he put me in the game. All I had to do was do nothing. But unfortunately, I did something. (laughs) And what I did was foul the opponent as he was shooting a three-point shot with time running out. I fouled him. He missed. He went to the line. He made all three free throws. And so in a matter of 10 seconds, I had managed to ruin what my team had worked for for a season. Uh, We lost that city championship game and immediately it was very emotional. I broke out in tears and just felt horrible. I had let my whole team down. They had worked hard to come to this spot and I had only hindered them. Uh, But what I learned from that, oddly enough, was that um, I needed I shouldn't care as much about what other people thought of me because I had almost been put in a situation after that where no one thought I was very good. So I, I either had to decide that I wasn't gonna care what other people thought of me if I wanted to keep playing basketball or I would have to stop playing altogether. Naturally after that, given, everyone didn't think very much of me, but what I chose was to to in response was to say okay irrespective of the fact that people don't expect me to do very much i'm going to let that motivate me because i know i am better than they think of me um and on a brighter note i went on to become captain of my high school basketball team and had a much more successful career uh, but in terms of spectacular failures that would certainly be at the top of the list that's pretty spectacular if you ask me
0: my last question is a legacy question and it's a question I don't say this very often, but it's a question that was inspired by James Buchanan. So it's a similar question he used to ask people when he had interviewed them for a job at George Mason. So, and I know you're a bit young for this question, but it's something to think about. I'm curious what you want people to say about you and your work in 100 years. In other words, what do you want written on your tombstone would be another way to put this. Like, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I will say it is odd to answer that as only 22 years old um <laughs> but uh you know for me I- i'd like it to say that i was intellectually honest i think that's a pretty lofty goal in and of itself i like to think that if at the end of the, at the end of my life i could say that i i earnestly tried to pursue truth that would be enough for me irrespective of whether or not i actually am able to ascertain truth and discover something cool that's less important for me it's hard enough challenge to try to earnestly pursue truth. Because that requires constantly pitting your biases against those of others. It reminds me of a John Stuart Mill quote. It's my favorite. It goes, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. That is a lofty, lofty goal to live up to, to constantly read the thoughts of those who disagree with you, to question your own biases. So at the end of the day, if it said on my intellectual tombstone that I was intellectually honest and that I earnestly tried to pursue truth that that would be enough for me because I think that's actually a pretty hard goal
0: not one that you think uh, as a student of economics would be too costly
1: (laughs) that's a different question Jimmy no just kidding (laughs) oh yes it might be very costly but I think it's worth it marginal benefit greater than marginal cost nicely put Chris thanks for coming on the show Jimmy, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much.